Good afternoon and welcome to our panel on international and national security law, Justice Scalia's jurisprudence, and national security. We'll hear uh, an engaging discussion and it's a spectacular panel. Uh, we'll be discussing Justice Scalia's jurisprudence uh, uh, in national security and international affairs, whether his jurisprudence is internally consistent and uh, how it relates to his views on executive power. Let me briefly introduce our panelists in the order in which they will appear. We'll hear from each panelist for a few minutes and then allow them to engage with each other in discussion and questions. And as always, we'll save time at the end for your questions, and I hope you have, uh, you have some good ones. Uh, we begin with uh, Adam Klein, who's a senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Um, uh, Mr. Klein clerked for Judge uh, Brett Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit and then clerked for Justice uh, Scalia. And he, he tells the story about when he uh, interviewed uh, uh, with Justice Scalia and said that uh, national security was his main academic interest. And Justice Scalia replied, we don't get many of those cases up here, I hope. So we'll, we'll see how that all turned out when we get into a discussion of the opinions that Justice Scalia has written. We'll then hear from Bradford Clark, the William Cranch, William Cranch Research Professor of Law at George Washington University Law School. Uh, Professor Clark served as a law clerk to my all-time favorite law school professor, Robert Bork, on the DC Circuit and then he clerked for Justice Scalia. Third, Elizabeth Goatine, uh, co-director of the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. She clerked for Judge Michael Hawkins on the Ninth Circuit, uh, and uh, we, uh, we, we almost had to change our scheduling a little bit because uh, uh, she had an unavoidable a professional commitment that thought she was going to have to arrive late, which of course we understood. Uh, fortunately, she has arrived just in time for the beginning of the program, but if she had not been here on time, she carefully asked me to explain that it was not because she had a meeting at the Trump Tower. <laughs> and then uh, last we'll hear from Stephen Vladek, a professor at the University of Texas School of Law who clerked for Judge Marsha Brown on the Ninth Circuit and Judge Rosemary Barquette on the Eleventh Circuit. We'll begin with Adam Klein. Thank you, Judge Smith. Uh, I'm honored to have been asked to participate, especially with such distinguished co-panelists. The Justice was a great mentor to me, and he is dearly missed. So I've been asked to set the table for today's discussion by offering a few overarching thoughts on Justice Scalia's legacy in national security law. I want to start by contesting the premise of today's discussion in a couple ways, and I think that's something that a pugnacious debater like Justice Scalia would have, would have accepted. First, I want to push back against the tendency in these types of judicial legacy discussions to evaluate a judge's legacy in terms of whether the judge, judge's outcomes uh, served a particular substantive end. Like, was the judge good for civil rights, good for class actions, good for consumers, good for business, that kind of thing? Now, unfortunately, the popular media tends to always report on law in this way through this consequentialist lens, as if the court's job is to produce good policy. Now, fortunately, we're at FedSoc, so everyone knows that's wrong. Uh, 
What is relevant uh, for us is how uh, a judge's, and here Justice Scalia's, opinions influence particular doctrinal areas, which is what I think we'll all be focusing on today. Uh, so on that note, here's a second challenge to the premise of today's discussion. Uh, Justice Scalia's legacy is not primarily, or even substantially, in national security law. It goes without saying, I think, that his greatest legacy was in legal interpretation. Uh, you've probably heard several panels and speeches about that already during the convention, so I won't say more about it here. In terms of other substantive areas of the law, uh, you might point to separation of powers, admin law, criminal procedure, uh, or the Second Amendment, but not national security. Now, that's not a criticism. I think arguably only Justice Jackson could be classed as a titan of national security law among Supreme Court justices. And national security is one of the least litigated areas of the law. Uh, there just aren't many cases on which to build a legacy. Uh, that said, I do want to offer one caveat. We don't yet know the full extent of Justice Scalia's influence in national security. In years to come, his, his opinions will be applied to new technologies and other developments in society. I'll just offer a couple of examples quickly. Uh, one example of a case with that kind of potential is Kylo v. United States. Uh, in that case, the police used a thermal imager to effectively look inside of a home without physically touching it, and the justice held that to be a Fourth Amendment search. Uh, that case's influence will only grow as new technologies allow police to intrude on constitutionally protected areas in new ways. Another example is United States v. Wren. Uh, that case, of course, held that the reasonableness of a Fourth Amendment seizure is to be judged objectively rather than based on the officer's subjective motivation. Uh, now, a major issue in national security law today is how the government collects and uses uh, digital communications and other personal data. Uh, such collection often has parallel purposes, so it can serve foreign intelligence purposes on the one hand and domestic law enforcement purposes on the other hand. Now, given Wren's focus on parallel purposes in the Fourth Amendment context, that case could also find new, new life in debates over government surveillance. Now, I don't want to dwell on this because I think Liza plans to treat it in greater detail. Uh, the point is simply that Justice Scalia's legacy in national security law is not fixed in stone. It may yet expand. Uh, now, I don't mean all this to imply that the justice didn't have any important national security opinions. Uh, this wouldn't be much of a panel if that were the case. He did, and I just want to discuss one, Hamdi v. Rumsfeld less for its doctrinal implications than for how it illustrates how the justice did his job. So a very brief summary of the facts, very brief, for those of you who don't remember them. Hamdi was a U.S. citizen captured fighting with the Taliban in Afghanistan. The military was holding him as an enemy combatant on U.S. soil. Uh, in an opinion by Justice O'Connor, the court held that the 2001 authorization for the use of military force passed by Congress after 9-11 authorized that military detention. Uh, and the, plural, the plurality then used a squishy balancing test, Matthews v. Eldridge, the famous case about welfare benefits, to tack on some procedural protections that it thought were reasonable. Uh, Justice Scalia dissented, joined interestingly by Justice Stevens. Uh, of course, the justice hated squishy balancing tests. He wrote, quote, the founders inherited the understanding that a citizen's levying war against the government was to be punished criminally. Now, Congress, of course, can suspend the writ of habeas corpus in cases of invasion or rebellion, but if it doesn't suspend the writ, uh, in the justice's view, Americans caught aiding the enemy have to be either criminally charged or released. I like the Hamdi opinion because it illustrates one of the things that I admired most about the justice, his willingness to absorb outcomes that diverged from what one would have presumed were his policy preferences. Uh, the consequences in Hamdi would have been pretty dramatic, and he acknowledged those head on. A Taliban fighter would have, had to, would have been released into the United States unless the government promptly, in his words, brought criminal charges. Uh, but the justice thought that the law compelled that outcome, so he didn't waffle. 
Indeed, he slammed the plurality opinion for straining to ensure, and I quote, that this dangerous fellow, if he is dangerous, need not be set free. Now, of course, no judge is 100% consistent, but the justice's record of principled decision-making and accepting the bad outcomes where the law compelled them was, I think, about as good as you can expect from a human being who, after all, has been given unreviewable power. So for me, that's a great testament to the justice's integrity. Now, I want to close by quickly addressing what I think is a really unfortunate misconception about the justice in this, in this area, and that is his relationship with foreign law. You all know, of course, that the justice, like all originalists, didn't consider foreign law or, or international public opinion relevant indicia of constitutional meaning. Now, I won't belabor the reasons for that here. I think at a FedSoc convention, everybody's familiar with them. Uh, but some media commentators took this to mean that Justice Scalia was some kind of provincial jingo who wasn't interested in the wider world. In fact, one online commentator, who I won't shame publicly here, although it would be justified, even... <laughs> even published a nasty piece the day after the justice passed, claiming that foreign judges would be celebrating his death because of his attitude toward foreign law. I'm, I'm not exaggerating that. Now, of course, that's unbelievably tasteless, but more important for our purposes, it's also completely wrong. The justice was immensely curious about other legal systems. As a young man, he studied at a Swiss university. He traveled many times abroad every year, sometimes uh, much to the dismay of his clerks trying to find him to sign off on an order. Uh, he had many friends in foreign judiciaries. There was a shelf in his office jammed with thick tomes about foreign law and comparative law. And he probably knew more about civil law than any person sitting in this room. In fact, and most people don't know this, he even cited European law, yes, that's right, European law, in his opinions when it was appropriate. That is to say, when it wasn't evidence of constitutional meaning. So one example is his 2012 dissent in a case called Lafler v. Cooper. Uh, the question in Lafler was whether there's a constitutional right to effective assistance of counsel in turning down a plea bargain where the defendant later receives a fair trial. The justice dissented, and he noted that continental legal systems, such as Germany, disfavor charge bargaining. In his view, plea bargains should be considered, quote, an embarrassing adjunct to our criminal justice system, end quote, rather than the central element. Now that, that, the Laffler dissent is a great dissent, uh, and I encourage fans of the justice's opinions, and especially his dissents, to revisit it. Uh, so all that said, while the justice had a deep interest in foreign law, uh, he was able to separate his personal enthusiasms from the limited role that the Constitution assigned him as a federal judge. And with that, I'll pass the baton to Professor Clark. Great. Thanks, Adam. Um, all right. Is this on? Can you hear me? Yes. Um, well, I'm particularly pleased to be here on this panel. Uh, I clerked for Justice Scalia, and um, I've been writing a book on the Law of Nations and the U.S. Constitution with another one of his former co uh, clerks, A.J. Belia at Notre Dame. And uh, I I'm sure I speak for both of us in saying that the justice has uh, profoundly influenced our thinking on questions of constitutional structure, constitutional law, and foreign relations. Um, so. I want to highlight today a connection between the justices' views on separation of powers and his approach to international law, national security, and foreign relations. Um, now, as I'm sure you've heard all during this conference, Justice Scalia is probably best known for his commitment to textualism and originalism. And uh, this is the view that unelected judges have a duty to apply the written law, but they can't usurp the prerogatives of political branches uh, and the people by going beyond the text and original meaning. And I think um, his commitment to separation of powers is in part an outgrowth of his uh, belief in textualism 
and originalism. So separation of powers is prominent in the constitutional text and its original meaning. Um, it's, you know, basic uh, law that the Constitution assigns three different kinds of government powers to three different branches of government in three different articles of the Constitution. Um, and this reflects separation of powers. Um, now, for Justice Scalia, he was vigilant in upholding and protecting the separation of powers. And of course, we know of some, many of his prominent opinions, particularly um, in the context of preventing Congress from exercising or encroaching upon the president's executive power. We're all familiar with his famous dissent in Morrison against Olson, where he would have invalidated Congress's attempt to encroach upon the president's executive power by appointing a um, limitation on a removal of an independent counsel, someone who was exercising executive power. And of course, his famous dissent um, made it clear that wolf uh, comes as a wolf. But he also objected to congressional attempts to interfere with judicial power. So in another one of his notable opinions for the court, in Plout versus Spendthrift Farm, he uh, objected to a congressional statute attempting to direct federal judges to reopen final judicial judgments and said that that's basically an interference with the judicial power and therefore a violation of separation of powers. As he put it, uh, the framers of the Constitution built separation of powers into the structure because they had lived among the ruins of a system of intermingled legislative and judicial powers. Now, Justice Scalia's commitment to separation of powers ran in the other direction as well. So just as Congress should not interfere with the judicial power, he thought federal judges should not usurp powers assigned to Congress and the President. And I think that idea comes into play as we discuss the topic of today's panel. Um, the Constitution gives the political branches primary responsibility for conducting war and foreign relations. So I'll just give you a few examples. In Article I, uh, the Constitution gives Congress power to regulate commerce with foreign nations, to define and punish piracies and felonies committed on the high seas and offenses against the law of nations, to declare war, grant letters of mark and reprisal, make rules governing captures, to raise and support armies, provide and maintain a navy, make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces. And in Article II, the Constitution gives the President many important powers over foreign relations, national security, and war. The President shall be the Commander-in-Chief. Um, the President shall have power with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties. The President shall nominate and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint ambassadors and shall receive ambassadors and other public ministers. So th this allocation of powers um, in the Constitution to the political branches as opposed to courts, I think informed Justice Scalia's approach to questions of foreign relations law. And I wanna just give briefly uh, three examples that I think highlight this uh, tendency. Um, one is the act of state doctrine, one is the alien tort statute, and the final one is the presumption against extraterritorial application of US law. So we'll take, take them in turn. First, the act of state doctrine. So in a, in a case decided in 1964, Banco Nacional de Cuba, 
uh, versus Sabatino, the Supreme Court held that federal and state courts have to uphold the formal acts of recognized foreign sovereigns taken within their own territory. And the court explained that the act of state doctrine has constitutional underpinnings and arises out of the basic relationships between branches of government in a system of separation of powers. Now, having said that, they didn't go into tremendous detail on the point. It was a little bit vague. But writing some years later for the court, Justice Scalia in a case called W.S. Kirkpatrick versus Environmental Tectonics um, described the act of state doctrine as a consequence of domestic separation of powers, reflecting the strong sense of the judicial branch that its engagement in the task of passing on the validity of foreign acts of state may hinder the conduct of foreign affairs. So a sensitivity for judicial interference with the political branch's conduct of foreign relations. And then uh, consider his separate opinion in Sosa versus Alvarez Machain in 2004, um, interpreting the alien tort statute. So the court had interpreted the statute somewhat narrowly, more narrowly than lower courts had, but left the door open, I think, for judicial um, recognition of causes of action in some limited number of cases. And he argued that on separation of powers grounds, um, that giving a jurisdictional statute, uh, interpreting a judicial, uh, jurisdictional statute to give federal courts power to create a cause of action that Congress has not recognized would intrude upon Congress's powers. So uh, I'm going to give you a quote from his opinion that I think kind of highlights his focus on separation of powers and the limited judicial role. We Americans have a method for making the laws that are over us. We elect representatives to two houses of Congress, each of which must enact a new law and, the, and present it for the approval of the president, whom we also elect. For over two decades now, unelected federal judges have been usurping this lawmaking power by converting what they regard as norms of international law into American law. Today's opinion approves that process in principle, though urging the lower courts to be more restrained. And then he observed that one does not need a crystal ball to predict that lower courts will use the court's approach to embark on a judicial occupation of a domain that belongs to the people's representatives. And a court, of course, had to revisit the uh, issues again when the lower courts, um, when his prediction about lower courts came true. Uh, third, I want to mention Justice Scalia's strong endorsement of the presumption against extraterritorial application of federal statutes. So in 2010, he authored an opinion for the court in the Morrison versus National Australia Bank case and explained that it's a longstanding principle of American law that legislation of Congress, unless a contrary intent appears, is meant to apply only within the territorial jurisdiction of the United States. And this means that unless Congress clearly expresses its intent to give a federal statute extraterritorial effect, courts must presume that the statute applies only domestically. And this presumption ensures that Congress and the President, rather than courts, make the fundamental decision to apply U.S. law to conduct that occurs outside the United States and in a foreign, foreign country. Now, this is an important default rule from a separation of power standpoint um, because application of U.S. law in foreign countries could easily cause friction and give offense to foreign nations. And um, 
I think the opinion recognized that the Constitution gives Congress and the President rather than courts responsibility for offending other nations. And they're, they're good at it. They're good at it, by the way. So I think all these examples, and I think we could talk about this as we have the discussion later on, I think these examples and other cases that we'll be hearing about today, I think what we see is Justice Scalia's commitment to the limited role of the judiciary under the Constitution in a, in a uh, system of separation of powers drove a lot of his decision making in this area. And so I'd be interested to uh, take that up later. Thank you. Hi. Um, first of all, thanks very much for having me here. Um, I want to shift gears for a minute from retrospection to speculation. One of the subjects that Justice Scalia never had the chance to squarely address was national security surveillance. And this is an issue, or a set of issues, really, that implicated several different and sometimes conflicting elements of the justices' jurisprudential outlook. And I think that makes it a really fascinating area to explore. I'm going to examine some of these different threads and try to divine how he might have ruled on some of the national security surveillance issues currently wending their way through the courts. And for reasons that will soon become obvious, I think of this as the Vicini Iocane powder challenge portion of today's panel. Anyone? No. Okay. I'm with you. Thank you. Uh, the first factor that comes into play here uh, is uh, the justice's solicitude for privacy rights. I am not the first person to observe that despite uh, Scalia's ideological conservatism, he was considered a friend to liberals and libertarians on privacy issues. I'll give three often cited examples. In the Kylo case, uh, Justice Scalia wrote the opinion holding that the Fourth Amendment protects against the police um, aiming a, a thermal sensing uh, device, a heat sensing device from across the street at a home to detect heat coming from inside the home, which might indicate the presence of a marijuana growing operation. In another case, Florida versus Jardine, uh, Justice Scalia again gave comfort to the ranks of homegrown marijuana users by holding that, uh, that it is a Fourth Amendment search to deploy a drug sniffing dog on somebody's front porch. And perhaps most famously in United States versus Jones, uh, Justice Scalia wrote the plurality opinion holding that the police need a warrant to affix a GPS device to a car in order to track its movements over time on public roads. So in these and many other cases, uh, the justice uh, emerged as a champion of privacy rights. Um, that might suggest that he would have been troubled by the NSA's bulk collection or warrantless surveillance programs. So I can clearly not choose the one in front of me. However, anyone? The one in front of me? So, uh, I'm trying. Um, however, many scholars and advocates have pointed out that these uh, cases that I just mentioned involved property-based privacy rights. So in Kylo and Jardine, what was at issue there was essentially the sanctity of the home, and those decisions turned on, on that fact. Um, in United States versus Jones, Scalia chose not to join with his colleagues who believed that Jones had a reasonable expectation of privacy in his movements over time, and he instead relied on the much narrower ground that, uh, that attaching the GPS to the car was a physical intrusion on property. 
The fact is Justice Scalia did not approve of the reasonable expectation of privacy test that was articulated in 1967 in Katz. The Fourth Amendment doesn't mention the word privacy. It talks about the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects. Uh, the justice felt that Katz had um, discovered what he referred to as a vague right of privacy from the penumbras of the Constitution, and he didn't like penumbras. He also, as we've discussed, didn't like uh, squishy standards as opposed to rules. The reasonable expectation of privacy test is perhaps the squishiest test imaginable. It lends itself to results-driven analyses, and Scalia much preferred to stick to the concrete list of uh, persons, houses, papers, and effects. Phone company records, which the NSA collected in bulk, are not the property of people making phone calls. Um, the internet backbone from which the NSA siphons off massive amounts of emails and other communications, it doesn't belong to the communicants. The absence of a traditional property right uh, suggests that uh, Scalia might not have been inclined to find a Fourth Amendment violation. So I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. Inconceivable. Inconceivable. Is that the end of, of, the end of this? Not remotely. <clears throat> Another strand of Justice Scalia's jurisprudence was his appreciation and understanding of technology and how it can and often must affect constitutional analyses. Recall that in Kylo, the police did not actually search the defendant's home. The police used technology from outside the house to gain information about the inside of the house. And Scalia actually framed the question at issue in Kylo as follows. The question we face today is what limits there are upon the power of technology to shrink the realm of guaranteed privacy. His answer, we think that obtaining by sense-enhancing technology any information regarding the interior of the home that could not otherwise have been obtained without physical intrusion into a constitutionally protected area constitutes a search. This is very important because the Fourth Amendment's list of protected items is not limited to houses and persons, but also includes papers and effects. And there is a very strong argument that the information the NSA today is gathering uh, using very advanced surveillance technologies and analytical tools could not otherwise be obtained, certainly could not have been obtained at the time the Fourth Amendment was adopted uh, without a search of papers and effects. Um, and in fact, Justice Scalia reportedly was very impressed when he was speaking at Brooklyn Law School uh, when a student asked him whether data stored in the cloud could be viewed um, as effects. I actually think the papers argument is an even stronger one, and I'll put in a plug for an article written by my colleague Mike Price in the 2015 issue of the Journal of National Security Law and Policy uh, making that argument. So I clearly cannot choose the line in front of me. But of course, we're not done. <clears throat> because one very important distinction between the cases in which the justice came down on, on the side of privacy and the NSA surveillance cases uh, is the element of national security. Like many other justice, just judges, excuse me, Justice Scalia uh, believed that the courts are uniquely unqualified to rule on national security issues. I frankly have to say that I've never understood this. Um, judge, courts are routinely called upon to issue 
rulings in cases involving highly complex medical questions, scientific questions, technological questions, questions of environmental impact. You know, national security is not magic. Um, nonetheless, he, uh, he saw these cases making their way to the court and he said, uh, the Supreme Court doesn't know diddly about the nature and extent of the threat and apparently couldn't be educated about it. It's, I added that, it's truly stupid that my court is going to be the last word on it. I take two things from this. First, if there was any plausible way out of ruling on the merits of these cases, I think he would have taken it. And in fact, uh, shortly before the Snowden uh, revelations, he joined a five to four Alito opinion holding that plaintiffs couldn't, could not bring a challenge to the FISA Amendments Act uh, they had no standing because they couldn't show that they had been subject to surveillance. Now, Snowden's revelations lowered the standing barrier, but didn't entirely eliminate it. And I also think that Scalia might have been inclined maybe towards some of the state secrets defenses that, that might have come up in these, in these cases. Um, second, if any of these cases had actually gotten to the merits stage, there would have been, in lots of them, a question of whether or not there is a foreign intelligence exception to the warrant requirement. Um, part, one, of, one part of that analysis is the extent to which obtaining a warrant would somehow threaten national security interests. I think we can assume he would have been very deferential to the government's position on that. If in fact the court found a warrant exception, it would have become essentially at that point a balancing test between, a squishy test nonetheless, but a, a balancing test between the government's national security interests and the privacy interests at stake. I think even if he uh, were convinced or persuaded as to the papers and effects analogy, he probably would have accorded a great degree of deference um, to the national security interests at stake. So that concludes my analysis. All I need now is two glasses of wine so I can switch them and drink wine. <laughs> and all this time. <laughs> yeah, that too. Uh, it's the next line. Um, <laughs> But I guess I'm uh, so picking up the thread. Um, so let me uh, join Liza and, and the rest of the panelists in, in thanking everyone for having us here, thanking Judge Smith for, for trying to keep us in line. Good luck. Um, I will say, I, I think Adam framed the conversation very nicely, both in his opening remarks and in the post uh, he wrote on Lawfare shortly after Justice Scalia passed. Um, I, I have nothing but admiration for Justice Scalia and for the impact he had on American constitutional law. And I think the best place where I see this in my day-to-day -day existence is in teaching constitutional law in federal courts. Um, Justice Scalia is teachable um, in a way that has not always been true and I dare say is not currently true for certain members of the court whose last names rhyme with entity. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, agree with him or disagree with him, there's something to be said for the um, principledness of most of his jurisprudence. So with that said, um, let me take the opportunity, because I am the last speaker on the Friday afternoon panel, um, to be a bit more of a curmudgeon um, and to suggest that, in fact, I actually think Adam was too polite in suggesting that perhaps Justice Scalia's national security legacy um, is not going to be what he's best known for. Um, I wonder if, in, in many ways, Justice Scalia's national security legacy is actually, in some ways, inconsistent. Um, with many of the things that we rightly celebrate about him as a person and as a judge, um, and that indeed it represents perhaps one of the few areas where he quite openly, I think, occasionally allowed his policy preferences to get in the way of how he might have otherwise approached particular constitutional and legal questions. Um, so let me sort of elaborate on why I think that, and then you all can yell at me um, afterwards about why I'm wrong. Um, so Adam, of course, is right to flag his dissent in Hamdi, 
um, as a very important and I think very meaningful moment. Um, one wonders, of course, why um, if Congress has to suspend habeas corpus to suspend, uh, to detain someone like Hamdi without charges, the same isn't true for sex offenders um, who under Justice Scalia's various opinions and concurrences in civil commitment cases um, never seem to have a constitutional objection to detention without trial in that context. Uh, perhaps there's a distinction that is eluding me and not alluded to in his dissent, um, but I wonder if there's an inconsistency there. But leaving that aside, I think the opinions that are perhaps much more important in assessing Justice Scalia's national security legacy are his dissenting opinions in the three Guantanamo cases, uh, Razul, Hamdan, and Boumediene, um, and the one mostly majority opinion he actually did write in a true national security case, um, his opinion for the court in the 2011 case called Ashcroft versus Al-Kid. Um, I don't want to relitigate re the merits of Justice Scalia's dissents in the Guantanamo cases. I'll just note uh, that at the beginning of his dissent in Boumediene, his rather fiery dissent in Boumediene, um, he went out of his way to note that he was departing from his normal practice um, by leading his dissent with the practical and policy consequences um, of what he thought the majority had wrought upon the country that day. Um, in opinion, he ends by saying more Americans will be killed as a result of this decision. Um, I dare say eight years later that has not been borne out. Um, but even if it had, um, the notion that those policy consequences should bear on the question of whether from a separation of powers perspective, Congress can completely cut the courts out of the loop in a class of habeas cases without suspending habeas corpus um, is, I think, not necessarily the finest example um, of the kind of principle decision-making that we so rightly honor Justice Scalia for in other contexts. Um, in Al-Kid, this is not exactly the world's most important case, um, but I do think it's quite telling that in a case that otherwise went up and down on some of the squishy Fourth Amendment issues that, Eli that, um, that Liza um, referred to, Justice Scalia went out of his way to answer on the merits a Fourth Amendment question that not only wasn't necessary to the result because the court had unanimously concluded that Attorney General Ashcroft was entitled to qualified immunity, um, but that in fact wasn't presented by the case um, Justice Kennedy, in his four-justice concurrence in Al-Kid, went out of his way to point out how the facts that Justice Scalia relied upon to reach the merits of the Fourth Amendment question were actually in rather substantial dispute um, and might not indeed have been as he portrayed them. I don't mean to say that Justice Scalia got the Fourth Amendment question in Al-Kid wrong. Um, certainly none of the other justices on the court in Al-Kid suggested that he did, just that it seems unusual given his approach in other contexts that Justice Scalia would go so far out of his way in that context to bless a controversial practice of using material witness warrants to detain terrorism suspects, perhaps even not as presented in that case. Um, but don't take my word for it on those four cases. I think we also need to include, as Liza did with one example, some of Justice Scalia's public statements um, on national security and related issues. Um, so for example, in the run-up to the Hamdan case in 2006, um, Justice Scalia got into a bit of hot water for giving an interview um, in which he basically expressed puzzlement on how there could be any question, not as a constitutional matter, but as a matter of pure policy preference, whether enemy soldiers captured during wartime can and should be tried in military commissions or civilian courts, um, not, again, because of a particular understanding of Article Three or of Congress's powers to define and punish offenses against the laws of nations, um, but simply because, as he said, if my son is fighting for the other side, for, for our country during wartime, you know, I expect that it's going to be the military that deals with him and not civilian courts. Again, we might agree with that, we might disagree with that. Um, that's a policy view of 
a question that was then before the Supreme Court, not really an especially constitutionally grounded view. Um, and indeed, interestingly, a number of retired generals and admirals sought Justice Scalia's recusal in Hamdan. As a result of those statements, um, he never ruled on that motion. Um, there are also the justices' comments on torture, um, which I think are actually even more, to my mind, troubling. Um, Justice Scalia gave a series of interviews um, and responses to <coughs> questions at conferences during his career about torture. Um, and indeed, at one point, I think actually incorrectly stated the law, which is that torture is only unconstitutional when it's inflicted as punishment under the Eighth Amendment. Um, I actually think there's Supreme Court precedent for the idea that torture also violates the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment, even outside of criminal prosecution contexts. But leaving that aside, um, he routinely invoked Jack Bauer, because after all, isn't all life just an episode of 24? Um, Jack Bauer and the ticking time bomb, and if Jack Bauer saved Los Angeles, should we really believe that a judge would tell him he was wrong to torture the people he had to do, he had to torture to save Los Angeles? Um, this strikes me as both an inaccurate and unhelpful way of looking at these issues, but also one that's not grounded in a particular form of originalism or of a particular methodology for interpreting statutory or constitutional text. It's driven by policy preferences. Policy preferences I completely understand, even if I don't share, but policy preferences nevertheless. And so it seems to me, based on this record, which admittedly is a modest collection of data points, um, that a real assessment of Justice Scalia's legacy um, in the area of national security law is complex. Um, I suspect we will all disagree about how he answered the substantive questions presented in the cases that we count as part of this oeuvre, um, but there's at least the specter from these admittedly scarce data points that at least in some of these issues, Justice Scalia took particular positions to vindicate his personal policy preferences, which again, many of us may share, and not his more admirable commitment in other contexts to particular principles and modalities of constitutional and statutory interpretation and of judicial decision making more generally. Um, again, at the end of the day, I don't think that that somehow be, uh, um, mars what is a remarkable 30-year record as a justice and even longer as a circuit judge um, record in this context. I just think we should be careful not to whitewash it, especially as it becomes so clear that in the days, weeks, and months, and years to come, Many of these issues may indeed be returning to the Supreme Court sooner rather than later, and may hang in the balance with the identity and views of Justice Scalia's successor. Thank you very much. Uh, so in the best tradition of uh, oral advocacy, appellate advocacy, uh, since I went first, I think, I think I'll take a, just a couple minutes to quickly rebut uh, a few things that Steve said, although I do appreciate, greatly appreciate his kind words for the justice. Uh, first on the speeches, I would say these aren't just scarce data points. I would dispute that they're data points at all. I think you have to evaluate a judge's legacy through the judge's opinions, just as, just as you would evaluate a law through its text rather than through isolated statements in the legislative history, as we all know. Uh, second, on the, on the Guantanamo cases and specifically on Boumediene, uh, if I had been advising the justice, I would have told him not to lead with the consequences. That said, leading, leading with the consequences or including a discussion of the consequences doesn't mean that they were a decisional factor. As we all know, the justice often included a rhetorical flourish, usually at the end of his opinions, uh, but they were not the decisive factor. And finally, on the Al-Kid case, yes, the justice chose to resolve the merits of the question presented, uh, even though he didn't, strictly speaking, have to do so. Uh, but just, uh, I think it was one term before, the court in Pearson v. Callahan had said that it is in the discretion of the courts to decide in a qualified immunity case 
whether or not to resolve the merits question. And the decisive factor, if I remember correctly, was judicial economy. Uh, and indeed, it did serve judicial economy in that case to resolve and reverse the Ninth Circuit's, frankly, clearly erroneous merits determination uh, about <coughs> the Fourth Amendment question presented. I don't think it would have served judicial economy to let that uh, mistaken opinion stand on the books and influence all kinds of other district court decisions in the Ninth Circuit for years until the court got another case where it could resolve the merits. Well, the, the Supreme Court has a special role anyway as a court of error for the Ninth Circuit, isn't that? <laughs> I will comment so, on that. I, I, I understand that I there have been various you. shots taken at the Ninth Circuit. Um, since there are two Ninth Circuit clerks sitting here, allow me to suggest that if you actually look at reversal rates over the last eight years, um, the Ninth Circuit has not been first in anything other than volume during that period, um, and indeed is usually in the middle of the pack. So maybe all this vile and hatred of the Ninth Circuit um, is based on a charitable misreading of the historical record. <laughs> I'd like to throw in something on the Ninth Circuit as well, a rather interesting story, which is a couple stories actually about, about my clerkship. One is that the Kylo decision, which found a Fourth Amendment right to privacy, um, was a reversal of a Ninth Circuit decision written by the judge I clerked for, Judge Harkins, at the time I was clerk, Judge Hawkins, at the time I was clerking for him. And we held that there was no Fourth Amendment right. So I think people, what you assume is going to be the outcome of these cases isn't always the outcome. I also want to just, a little, little, little vignette, which has nothing to do with anything, which is that um, my, my judge, Judge Hawkins, would often sit with Judge Reinhardt on panels and, and they would issue decisions and the Supreme Court would reverse them and this would happen over and over. And at one point, they, they were on a panel together and a decision went up and the Supreme Court upheld it, and my judge called Judge Reinhardt and said, I still think we're right. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I have a couple of comments um, about what was said, and I also want to make a comment about the Ninth, ninth Circuit. I may as well. Um, I'll tell you, the Ninth Circuit may not be the most reversed circuit, but they've got a reputation that they might have justly earned, and part of it does, I think, stem from Judge Reinhardt. It, it just flashed in my mind, might have been in this very room, 20 years ago or something at a Federalist Society conference. Uh, Judge Reinhardt was on a panel on stare decisis here, and uh, he was saying how terrible it was that uh, the Rehnquist Court was overturning precedents of the Warren Court, and how they didn't believe in stare decisis, and it was just terrible. And I talked to him afterwards, and I said, well, Judge, um, the Warren Court reversed more Supreme Court decisions than any court in history, do you think any of the decisions that they made overruling a prior case was a mistake? Um, he said, oh no, they were all justified. Um, so he was not very consistent, and then he came to my law school, and he said, and I know he said this out publicly elsewhere, which I think gives them the Ninth Circuit a bad reputation, maybe fault, you know, unfairly, but he said, you know, I do what I want. I don't really care what the Supreme Court thinks. They can't reverse them all. <laughs> so I don't, I, mean, I, don't know, I don't know why the views of one judge are a, a, on a court with 45 judges is something we should use to paint a broad brush. But I will say, I Maybe mean, I not. Think, I'm not know. done. Hold on. <laughs> I, I want to talk Judge a little Kaczynski bit. stories, Steve? Let, this panel's not about the Ninth Circuit. Let's come back to Justice Scalia. Um, I want to just respond a little bit to what you said, Steve, about Justice Scalia and his, uh, your suggestion that he was inconsistent and maybe relied on policy preferences. I don't really think that's true. It may be that uh, it's possible that his policy preferences aligned in those uh, Guantanamo cases. But I think if we revert back to his general 
and long-held and deeply held uh, principles of textualism, originalism, and separation of powers, um, you know, we can see why he made a distinction in a case like Hamdi that Adam talked about and the cases that you talked about. Because uh, for him, the Constitution clearly governs when U.S. citizens' rights are at stake. That was easy for him. The text for him was clear, the history was clear, um, and he didn't like the Supreme Court or the plurality watering down constitutional rights. And that probably didn't go with his policy preferences in that case, but he took that position. Now, in a case like Boumediene, where you have enemy, alien enemy combatants being held outside the territory of the United States, it's not at all clear that history, in fact, it's quite clear the opposite, that history would support the extension of habeas uh, outside the United States. And so his view on that when really lines up. When you say up, it's quite clear that history is to the opposite, to what are you referring? I'm referring to Amanda Tyler's forthcoming book. That's all. Um, so not the actual amicus brief filed by legal historians in Boumediene. Well, they're always right. Well, anyway. So anyway, I'm just saying, look, you can we can disagree on the merits, but your point was that his decision was driven, your suggestion was his decision was driven by his policy preferences. I think that's false. I think Justice Scalia's views in these decisions and in all of the decisions in his opinions were driven by his view of the text and history and meaning of the Constitution. Now, you can disagree with his interpretation of the Constitution, but that doesn't mean he was deciding a case based on his personal preferences. So my, my question, if I could jump in, is what would he have done when a, when a constitutional right of an American came up against a national security issue that he felt that the court was not in a position to address? Where would well, he, we have Hamdi. Where would he we have, have come We have Hamdi down? for that. Yeah, He's answered uh, that. Well, yeah, although I'm not sure. In, I think in, his, in that case, there was the option of a charge of treason. Do you know what I'm saying? The option wasn't necessarily just. So I'm not sure that that actually is quite. I'm not sure that he really necessarily bought the national security justification in that Listen, one. Listen, he. And I, I, I just I want to go back to this to to this point or this emphasis in many of his decisions that the courts are not fit to, to rule on national security questions or that they have the least amount of competence on this. I just want to push back against that a little bit. Um, I, Brad, I'm not sure if it was you or Adam who was reading you know, the, the various parts of the Constitution that assign these national res responsibilities to the executive branch and to Congress. I think it's interesting to look at the relative um, assignments of between executive branch and Congress to see which branch has, is in charge of what. But I think pointing out that none of those are in Article 3 makes is kind of irrelevant because no specific substantive authority of Congress or the president is in Article 3. Article 3 just says that courts have the responsibility to adjudicate cases and controversies arising under the Constitution, arising under the Constitution, the laws of the United States. It does not distinguish between those that arise in national security matters and say tax matters, which you know Congress can raise taxes. The courts can't do that, but no one would say the courts lack the competence to decide in a tax case. So this notion that there's something in the Constitution that makes judges unfit to decide or unqualified to decide national security cases. Now, that is not quite the same thing as saying that judges should not defer to national security judgments or, or extend some degree of deference to the national security judgments. I mean, I, there are many cases in which courts um, you know, accord deference to expertise um, in all kinds of issues, and I, and I think that that's 
appropriate. But the notion that somehow this shouldn't come before the Supreme Court, that the Supreme Court should not be deciding these legal matters, these cases and controversies, is something that I have trouble understanding. And can I just add, I mean, if we're, if we're going to talk about sort of consistency across case law, I mean, so, Brad, you talked about a lot about Justice Scalia's uh, foreign relations jurisprudence. I wonder how you feel about his decision in Boyle versus United Technologies. Um, right? I mean, this is a case that, at least in that context, was only about a design defect claim against a military subcontractor, but has been appropriated by lower courts to preclude all state law tort claims against private military contractors for even the most egregious abuses on the battlefield, um, what I think Judge Kavanaugh has called battlefield preemption. Right? Um, this is Justice Scalia, with no grant from Congress, fashioning a federal common law defense um, and displacing state law because of what he perceived to be a federal policy interest disfavoring um, tort liability, um, right? So it, just, it seems to me that the, the legacy here is more complex than just he had one set of principles and he always followed them. And if it's, if it's more complex than that, then what is driving the complexity? Can I just inject an anecdote here? When we were interviewing uh, law clerk candidates, our successors, I don't know if, if you've heard of this, but it was customary to grill the uh, law clerk candidates for 90 minutes, sometimes up to two hours. Any area of law was fair game, four on one, and it was fairly intense. There was a little bit of sadism, but also of group pride in upholding the legacy of the office. And one question that was invariably asked, because I think it is in most law clerk interviews, is can you name a case of the justices or the judges that you disagreed with? And we had an informal rule that you couldn't say Boyle. <laughs> no, wait, wait, wait. But, but why not? I mean, so, so, Justice Black, so, Justice, so Justice Black did the same thing. And Justice Black, the informal rule in his chambers was you couldn't say Korematsu, right? Um, why, why was Boyle the answer you couldn't get? Well, you wanted to force them to be creative. Too obvious. Too, too obvious. obvious. Um, well, I can, I so can you're both that. conceding that Boyle no, is inconsistent not, with... No, not at all. Okay. <laughs> just checking. Not at all. Uh, I'll tell you why. Um, but first, I just want to comment more generally. Um, you know, Justice Scalia was not afraid to follow his principles where they led. Um, you know, in, in the Confrontation Clause cases, he was willing to bite the bullet, and he led on that issue. In a lot of Fourth Amendment cases, as has been mentioned, uh, he led on that issue. In the, you know, he joined Justice Brennan's two opinions in the flag-burning opinions. I mean, the idea that Justice Scalia um, sat around trying to implement his policy preferences through his opinions is just not consistent with his um, approach to law. I don't think I, we're saying I it is. Think I think we're saying in this context no. it was All more right. problematic. That's not flag burning. Right. Um, now, on Boyle, Boyle was a case involving an, uh, a crash of a military helicopter. And of course, the uh, family of the deceased pilot could not sue the United States because they hadn't waived their sovereign immunity. And so they sued the manufacturer of the helicopter who was contracted by the United States to build it. And they argued, because since it crashed in the water, they argued that the hatch of the helicopter should open in to the helicopter instead of out. Um, because if you crash in the water, that's the only way you can get out, if it opens in and not out, because of the water pressure. But of course, having a military helicopter that opens in would have severely limited its use as a military helicopter in 90% of its uses. And so um, I would agree that the opinion is not the justice's best opinion. Um, it happens to have been the same, I actually talked to him about this once. <laughs> It happens to have been the same year that he was writing his Morrison v. Olson 
dissent, and I think he was slightly preoccupied. Um, but it, I actually do think the decision is quite defensible uh, on structural and originalist grounds, um, but he just didn't make a good, uh, as good a case of it. Partly that was because of the way the opinion was, uh, the, the case was briefed by the parties. I've actually looked at the briefs. So federal judges should be able to fashion federal common law rules that displace state tort regimes in areas in which Congress has specifically disclaimed any interest in regulating? No. Okay. But what they should be able to do is if a state, uh, through tort law or even a statute, tries to uh, interfere with contractors who have been contracted with the federal government, there are other cases in the Supreme Court saying that that can be preempted as a matter of federal law because the but Constitution, hang on a second, Constitution gives Congress the power to raise and support armies and has authorized them to purchase helicopters. There's an old, now he didn't cite this, but if you go back to uh, Osborne versus, I think it was Osborne versus Bank of the United States, um, Chief Justice Marshall, in his long opinion, um, gave a hypothetical. Uh, this was a case involving you know, taxation or interference with the Bank of the United States, and he said, you know, can it be supposed that a state could prohibit uh, a military uh, the government from buying military supplies in that state. I mean, you know, he anticipated this very question, and he thought of it, Chief Justice Marshall thought of it, as a structural issue with state interference of a federal function. Now, we can debate the details of the case, but to say it's not principled and that he just decided that he loved federal common law, that's inconsistent with every other opinion he's ever written on federal common law. And he didn't say he was endorsing federal common law broadly in that case. So, you know, I know people like to beat up on Boyle. It's not the best written opinion he ever wrote, but uh, I think it's structurally, it's consistent with his thinking. So just to bridge this uh, inadvertent left-right divide that seems to have arisen on the stage <laughs> here, uh, I'd like to... No one could have seen that coming. <laughs> I'd like to uh, praise uh, something that Liza said earlier, and in fact, I thought she did a great job of projecting Justice Scalia's uh, jurisprudence onto uh, future, present and future surveillance debates. I think in particular this papers issue is a really, really interesting one. I have long thought that the papers argument is something that would have appealed to the justice. The analogy between an email and a physical letter is fairly straightforward. I do think that that points, up to what points, points to one distinction that's imp important though, and that's the distinction between content and metadata, which is sort of a wonky uh, term for used by national security lawyers and technologists, but in effect it's the difference between what's written on the letter itself and what's written on the envelope. Uh, and I think that, that suggests that the justice might have thought that uh, the, the contents of an email have the same status as the contents of a letter, but that the metadata of the email, so the to and from lines and other sort of information like that helps the email get where it's going, might have had the same unprotected status as what's written on the outside of the letter. You can imagine the founding era postmaster sort of carrying the letter and nosily looking at the, at the to and from line on the letter. Can, uh, I, can I respond quickly to sure, that? Absolutely. Which is, um, I think you might be correct if all we were dealing with was whether or not the government could look at the to and from on individual emails. Metadata has become a much, much more complex phenomenon with a ton of different kind of information. The distinction between metadata and content is often very unclear. What is the subject line of an email? What is the IP address that a person, or the, sorry, the URL a person visits? At what point does it move over into content? The other thing I would throw into this, and this goes to his understanding and appreciation of technology is that what somebody could glean from the front of a letter 
once upon a time, cannot be compared in any way to what can be teased out of metadata using these incredibly so sophisticated computer algorithms. And the kinds of things that can be teased out are very, very much about content. They're about the associations, the beliefs, I, all the things that would be in a paper and, and protected. So I, I just want to throw that in there. I agree with that as a factual matter. But I think that's a functional argument. And I think the justice, as a, as a formalist, a dyed-in-the-wool formalist, would not have followed that line of reasoning. It, it's, right? it's not exactly. I know what you're saying, but it, it is, it's not exactly, because it is, it is a way. I think he could have seen it as a way in which the analogy, because uh, sure, I mean, he, if he could have relied on an analogy to letters that were sent at the time of the founding, of course, he would have liked to. But, he could, but I think he would have seen the way technology has made that analogy inapt. I guess that's what I'm saying. And so I think the formalism of that would have broken down for him. And, and if I may, I mean, I, 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 I just want to piggyback on this to say, and even if the content metadata distinction were dispositive, right, to Justice Scalia hearing these cases this year, next year, the following year. I mean, it's worth bearing in mind that not under the Bulk Phone Records Program, but under Section 702, um, the FISA Amendments Act 2008, one of the more controversial things that the government is doing is, in fact, collecting massive amounts of content um, of U.S. persons' communications. That is to say, folks who Justice Scalia would surely agree have an expectation of privacy in that context. Um, and then the question would actually not have been about the future of the third party doctrine, right. um, which was implicated and teed up by Jones, but rather the scope of the incidental collection doctrine, right? And whether. Um, and the foreign intelligence surveillance and exception. And the foreign intelligence surveillance exception. Yeah. And whether those two by themselves were enough to cover the knowing <laughs> and indeed um, deliberate interception, right, by the US government of millions of Americans' communications content. Um, which is, you know, part of what I think we'll be debating in Congress, yeah. maybe. Yeah. I think those are, those are the right issues, and I, I agree with that. I think uh, how Justice Scalia, again, we're ventriloquizing to some extent here, <laughs> but I, I think uh, what we're talking about are technologies that enable the government to do things that might, in isolation, be permissible, but because of technology, the government can do it a lot, a lot more than it could with human beings. My impulse is that Justice Scalia, as a formalist, probably would have said, so be it, sometimes technology alters the balance of power between the government and the citizen in ways that aren't prohibited by the Constitution, uh, but maybe I'm wrong. It's, it's a difference in kind, not just a difference in quantity. I, I think it, it's very much that statement from Kylo really grabbed me when I first read it a long time ago, um, that, this is, that this is information that was not gotten from a search of the home, but could not otherwise have been gotten with that technology except through a search of the home. And the information that we are talking about that can be gleaned from metadata uh, is information that could not otherwise have been gotten without directly looking at the content, actually, of some of these emails. Is, I'm sorry. Not I mean, just I mean is, yeah. is that true? There are sort of analogs, uh, pre-digital analogs to that type of information gathering, they just would have been incredibly laborious, right? An interesting analogy is Not just laborious, they actually would have been prohibited by a bunch of federal statutes. Right? Maybe I mean, by statute. There you but, go, by statute. No, I think that would have been impossible. But, but, so, so the I mean, constitutional just, question would not have arisen, not, is my point. An, an interesting analogy is facial recognition, right? Imagine that there are facial recognition cameras on every corner, and you all there of a sudden you can take tens of thousands <laughs> of images of, of a person every day and figure out exactly where they go at all times. Would Justice Scalia have thought that prohibited by the Fourth Amendment? simply because it enables the government to know things that it couldn't have previously known and that are incredibly personal and are analogous to the type of sensitive details they previously only could have gotten by value in the Constitution, assuming arguendo that that's so. I think no. I think no. I think he would have said, your face in public is, was not protected by the Fourth Amendment, 
And just because the government can now do it in volume doesn't change that fact. That's, just, would, that's just my so, but guess I'm, based so on let his me push you, Let me push you down this particular rabbit hole. So what about an anti-covering law? Right? That, so there are countries, no, but I'm, I'm serious, right? So this is the next step. There are countries with sophisticated facial recognition technology who are also considering or in some cases have enacted laws that prohibit people from covering their faces in public, right? My own sense of the justice, and you, got, you obviously both know him a lot better than I do, um, is that that kind of dictate to people as opposed to restriction on the government, right, might very well have, have gotten his dander up. That is an interesting rabbit hole. I think that might raise other constitutional issues. But see, Employment Division v. Smith. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. And I I think it's... I think, I think it's an oversimplification, even with the facial recognition technology, to say that it's just a difference in volume. And, and, and I think that that, un, that understates what is being done and understates the power and the, and the sort of unique uses of, of some of the processing technologies for, for this data. And, and that is where I actually think Justice Scalia would have been, you know, he would have, he would have, learned, he would have educated himself about this stuff and he would have understood it. And I, and I think that would have been, you know, it, helpful to those who have a certain view of the Fourth Amendment and a certain view of privacy protections. I just think that ultimately it would have bumped up against his hesitation to judicially do anything to constrain the national security establishment in the absence of, you know, a, a, an extremely clear constitutional pronouncement or in the absence of um, a, a sort of factors that might have diminished some of his national security concerns. Steve, I could comment on your hypothetical. I think, uh, I think if, I don't think he would have allowed a federal statute regulating what people wore in public, uh, not because of the Fourth Amendment, but because of lack of federal power. It's the justices on the other side of the court that would have said, oh, well, that affects commerce, um, what you wear in public. So, so, I mean, I, I realize that that's a fun thing to say, Brad, but I actually think that... That's not, I didn't say it, they did. I, think, I actually think that in the national security context, all of the justices, lefty, righty, whatever, Martian, um, have had no difficulty um, embracing capacious views of the foreign commerce clause that you and I in separate contexts might find radically difficult to defend in the context of the interstate commerce clause. So I'm less sanguine about that. So we've, we've solved everything. I think another interesting distinction to highlight is uh, we're talking broadly about national security and some of the things that we're we're batting around here uh, straddle the line between law enforcement and foreign intelligence or counterterrorism or other sort of external security functions. And I think perhaps uh, there's a thread of deference to the external security imperatives of the United States and the justices' opinions. Now, we might disagree whether that's a sort of principled judgment that the Constitution vests those responsibilities with the political branches or whether it's sort of outcome-oriented policy preferences. Uh, But I don't think that that can even be argued to extend to law enforcement. I I don't think you're arguing that. Uh, But just a a sort of fun reminder of the uh, Maryland v. King case with the DNA cheek swabbing. The justice had the famous line in his dissent, I doubt that the proud men who founded this country would have opened their mouths for royal inspection. So he was certainly uh, not, not inclined to defer to the police. Well, yes, except he did feel that there was a need for the police to have clear guidance and to not be forced into making, uh, into sort of divining what the law might have allowed them to or not do at any given point. And he was willing to allow, you know, rules that would enable the police to maybe go further than necessary in that instance 
for the sake of um, making it administrable by the police. So in that sense, I think there was a little bit of a, uh, and that was in all things, it wasn't just well, for police. That's certainly true, that preference for clear rules and the recognition that good law enforcement uh, or fair law enforcement requires clear rules. I think in many cases, the law enforcement would have preferred to stick with the mushy rule. Confrontation is a great example of that. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, I mean, part of what I was thinking about was, for, for example, the decision in Thornton, which I th think is an interesting decision, in which Scalia basically said this was a defendant who um, was stopped in a car and then was brought to the police car, squad car, and was handcuffed in the back seat, and then um, his car was searched, the interior of his car was searched. And the reason for the warrant exception um, to a search of a car in these situations is was had been grounded traditionally in the fact that the person could reach for a gun or the person or a weapon or the person could you know quickly destroy evidence sort of in their um, in their environs and that doctrine had basically the the courts the, and the court had held and Scalia was okay with this that you don't have to show that in the particular instance the person that that was a, a realistic and present fear. So you know, he was okay with the fact that in situations where there wasn't really any reason to, to worry about that, that there could be a bright line rule, that it's okay to search the passenger compartment if you're arresting somebody in a car. But when it came to Thornton and this guy was handcuffed in the backseat of a different car, he said, okay, too far. He said, you know, we, I'm all for bright line rules. I'm all for you know, not making a laundry list of exceptions to them. But when you, become, when you are so untethered from the actual reasons for the exception in the first place, then it has to give away. It was, it was a dissent, by the way. But then he, he said it has to give away. So can I just ask, I mean, Adam, I'm curious. Do you think Al-Qaeda comes out exactly the same way if it's not a national security case? Yes. The, the, the merits follow pretty clearly from <coughs> what I was talking about before. At the objective subjective distinction. And you think and, and, and going out of the way to reach the merits despite the contested factual record. Yeah, and, I think okay. for sure. <laughs> I'm not so sure. I don't I think he would have wanted to let that pinball pinball around the, the Ninth Circuit for years and years. I don't think that would have made any sense. I certainly don't even though, think that even was though, even though the number of cases where this actual situation arises is in the teens. Uh, yeah, no, that's true. The material witness warrant is not uh, heavily used. Uh, I, I take the I take the point, but still I don't think there would have been any benefit to let the case continue to pinball around the Ninth Circuit. So one other thing I want to raise that we haven't talked about yet, do I have time? Okay, is um, again, thinking about the foreign intelligence exception to the warrant requirement. This has been, the, in recent iterations, this has been with the FISA court looking at this issue, um, it has been framed as a, as a form of a special needs um, exception to the warrant requirement, which is basically if the government has a separate need, separate and apart from an ordinary law enforcement need um, that makes it impracticable to get a warrant. It might not necessarily need a warrant. There might be other uh, means that are appropriate. And uh, what's interesting is that the, the cases that dealt with this, the Court of Appeals cases that dealt with this issue before the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act was passed in 1978, which then kind of answered all these questions essentially in terms of what procedures would be used, those cases recognized a foreign intelligence exception um, but limited it to cases in which uh, it had a few limitations, one of which was that the primary purpose um, had, to be, uh, had to be the collection of foreign intelligence, the primary purpose of the surveillance or the collection. So it couldn't be ordinary law enforcement. And the FISA court has, in recent years, kind of ruled differently, and the, and the law right now, the status of the, of the statutory law is that uh, the government can dispense with a warrant in collecting uh, 
emails and, and such in foreign intelligence cases, um, even if law, ordinary law enforcement is the primary purpose, as long as a, a significant purpose is foreign intelligence collection. I'm not sure how Justice Scalia would have felt about that. He, acknowledged, he is not somebody who is particularly happy about looking at the purpose of law enforcement action, and, and in cases like Wren, right, he said you can't look at the purpose, but he acknowledged that special needs was different, that there were two categories of cases in which purpose absolutely was relevant, and one was special needs, which is what foreign intelligence these days is framed as, and the other was administrative searches. And, and the reason why matters. Yes, and in the, yes, absolutely, and, and he, um, and he, there, there is more than one case that in which, and I wish I had the language in front of me, in which he said, in a case where there is a search and the primary, and, the, and he didn't say primary purposes, but he said the purpose is ordinary law enforcement, you need to have probable cause. And I, I'm just wondering how he would have felt about this idea that the primary purpose could be ordinary law enforcement and yet you could get around the warrant requirement. It's a national security case, so who knows. So this would be a, a good time for any uh, questions from the audience if anyone, uh, if anyone has any, and I think we have least a microphone. There's two microphones, all right. Yes. Now, uh, of course, our, I, I don't know whether these are standards or rules, but I'm going to announce them as rules. So, that, uh, so these have to be real questions and not just a speech with a question at the end um, and, uh, and make them you know, fa fairly short so we'll give everybody uh, an opportunity to, uh, to respond, okay? Uh, J.B. Tarter, my statements are my own, not the Defense Department's. Uh, question for you is, if we put on our Scalia hat, what would Scalia do? Looking at the litigation discussed about the alleged programs that Snowden uh, allegedly revealed, how would he take the approach on Smith versus Maryland for the third party disclosure? Taking Scalia's approach to sorry decisis, if we say that emails generally are disclosed to the email provider and they look at content, what do we think Scalia's approach would be balancing Fourth Amendment reasonable searches and seizures with the longstanding third party disclosure rules? He's saying third party. Do you want it, or do Go I for want it? it? So this is actually where I think the technology issue um, actually does become relevant, and his understanding and appreciation of technology, because these, when you're talking about emails, for example, that are stored in the cloud and that are sent through a provider, I mean, basically every communication in which we engage today. Um, almost every communication other than standing in a room talking to somebody has to be disclosed to a third-party communication service provider. That is how we communicate, right? And that has fundamentally changed um, the, the presumption that would have been in place when the Fourth Amendment was adopted, when these things would have happened through, through letters and through papers and through, and, and through things like that. So I think it, it, it depends on which kind of third-party access we're talking about. I don't think Scalia would have been in any hurry to get rid of the third-party doctrine, but I can imagine in situations where you were talking about a search, for example, of cloud data, of data stored in the cloud, which otherwise there's no way the government could get it except by going into a person's file cabinet right, or, or which once upon a time was the equivalent of a file cabinet. I could see Justice Scalia being very sympathetic to the notion that that is an example of technology shrinking the realm of guaranteed privacy that existed from the founding. And so I, I could certainly see places in which, I, I don't think he was eager to, to resolve that issue if he didn't have to, but I think if it came before him, there he would have, um, there are places where he would not have seen the third, third party doctrine as controlling 
that some lower courts have been very quick to say, well, it has to control. So, so, so in what way would the, would the cloud be analogous to a safe deposit box at a, at a, at a bank, to, to which the bank supposedly could get access if it, if it really wanted that? But the bank is the third party. Well, I mean, I suppose, I suppose one distinction is that you could, in theory, keep things at home and not at a bank, right? I don't think there is a way of engaging in the modern world and in communications and in, in um, interactions with other human beings, essentially, without using the internet. And, and, and if I may, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's not a very strong sign, but I do think it's interesting that Justice Scalia joined without any comment Chief Justice Roberts' opinion for the court in Riley versus California, where, you know, I, even though the chief dropped the obligatory, this is only about the search incident to arrest exception and nothing else footnote, um, you know, there's a very different understanding of the expectation of privacy people have in the kinds of information we carry in our cell phones um, from that which, you know, under for, uh, under, underlies and, and informs the, the conventional third party doctrine. And there was a narrower opinion in that holding that he could have joined. Oh, of course. He could have joined, he could have joined Alito's, Alito's concurrence, yep. and he didn't. I mean, I, I think he got it. I mean, I think he felt that this was, I, I think he felt that this was fundamentally, um, was fundamentally beginning to intrude on a realm of privacy that was considered to be sacrosanct and guaranteed 200 years ago. Now, of course, another exception to the warrant requirement that I haven't heard mentioned today is the exigency uh, uh, exception. And I wonder to what extent, and I'm just throwing this out, I don't have a view on it, to, to, to what extent is the possible destruction of, 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 of electronic evidence, which can be done much more easily than even the flushing something down the down the toilet. I mean, does the exigency exception play any part potentially? So, the, I mean, this? the government the government argued that in Riley, um, okay. and you know, and 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 I, I never thought there'd be a discussion of Faraday bags right. um, at a Supreme Court or argument, but it, I guess that's what happens in, in 2014. Um, I think it's telling that, that even in the face of that exact argument, that there was a need to preserve evidence. Um, the court still would have its way to say that's not enough to justify, you know, the ability to even do an inventory search of a cell phone incident to arrest. So. You know, I, I don't know if I'm as confident as Liza is that Justice Scalia, quote, got it, unquote, but certainly Riley is a difficult decision to reconcile with a view that Justice Scalia would have just adhered to the four letters of the third party doctrine as understood in, in Smith and Miller. And in some ways, I, I would say that the exigency exception, the existence of the exigency exception to the warrant requirement sort of makes... Um, some of the other exceptions that we're talking about unnecessary in some ways to the extent that that's the reason for those exceptions. So speed, the need for, the need for speed, is actually one of the reasons why the government back in the 1970s defended uh, having a foreign intelligence exception to the warrant requirement. And one could say that if it's necessary in some portion, but not all of those cases, why not just rely on the exigency exception? Same thing, I mean, I, I believe the opinion in Riley actually said this, if a Farabidday bag isn't gonna do it for some reason, if you have some reason, does people know what that is? It's, it's, a, it's a bag that, that uh, shields blocks the radio, blocks the radio waves coming in from the phone, so once they get the phone, they can put that in there and nobody can remotely wipe it and destroy the evidence. Um, but anyway, the, the, the decision basically said if, you, if there's still some situation where for whatever reason there's some kind of hazard that's posed by um, not searching this phone immediately, then you can rely on the exigency exception. Another little technological wrinkle uh, to add here. Uh, email that goes through the cloud, which I assume is what, what most of us use, 
email that's stored in the cloud is scanned, is read by third-party bots. So your Gmail has a bot read it to serve ads. They scan for malware. They scan for child pornography. Again, ventriloquizing of it here, I think Justice Scalia, because he perhaps got it on technology, would have said that that is not equivalent to a, a third-party human being putting eyes on the content of your communications and thereby exempting it uh, from the third-party uh, from the from the warrant requirement. All right. Another question. Yes, uh, my name is David Watson. I'm an in-house attorney from Northern Illinois. Uh, Elizabeth mentioned the the justice's statement about the Supreme Court being uniquely unqualified, and I think it's a good point that they attack they ta uh, tackle a lot of complex issues they don't have technical expertise on. I always thought that perhaps what he was referring to were the, was the greater consequences of getting decisions wrong in that area, and I'm just curious, is, is that possible what he meant? And if so, is it legitimate? Is there any uh, support for, for that as a, a consideration? I mean, I, I would just comment that I, I think what he was probably referring to was the idea that under the Constitution, at least for foreign threats uh, national to national security of the United States, that the Constitution gives that job to the political branches to deal with national security matters. Now, certainly it could overlap with domestic rights or, or uh, uh, citizens' rights, but I, I think, you know, thinking about foreign threats to national security, I think he saw that as an allocation of powers issue, that the courts just simply had no role of, of their own uh, to take an active role in how the United States dealt with those threats. I mean, the Constitution also gives Congress exclusive power over post offices. But I've, I've never heard the argument that the court should not rule on any case involving a post office. Because, like because no, because, you know, Article 3 doesn't mention post right, offices but it, either. Should they create a post office if Congress didn't no, create no, one? No, no, and I don't think that, that the Supreme Court should create an office of the Director of National Intelligence if Trump gets rid of it. I don't think that the Supreme Court should then make a new one. I think the Supreme Court's role is absolutely limited to resolving cases or controversies. But to imagine that cases and controversies don't arise in national security issues, um, I don't think anybody actually thinks that. They oh, do. They and, and you can parse the Constitution all you like. It does not grant the President or Congress any authority to resolve cases or controversies in national security in national security measures. That's the courts that have to do that. And frankly, these conversations, these cases that we're talking about, yes, they involve national security. They also involve the Fourth Amendment and privacy rights and civil liberties. And those are very much the province of the courts to rule on how the Fourth Amendment should be interpreted, what the permissible scope of privacy rights are under the Constitution. I submit that the, the DNI has no expertise in that. So, you know, I just, it's not, it's not an argument, but to the, to the specific question, I, I, you know, honestly, I would have, if that were, if it were framed in that way, I would be slightly more sympathetic, although, uh, you know, again, I would say, why are we so sure that the courts are more likely to get it wrong than the executive branch or Congress? They certainly get it wrong a lot of the times on national security. But, but he didn't frame it that way. I mean, he's, he, he made so many statements about this, about how completely inadequate, how, you know, we don't know diddly about the threat. Well, come on, courts don't, you know, judges don't know diddly about the subject matter of most of the cases that come in front of them. That's why they're witnesses. That's why there's evidence, so. And, and if I may, and in the surveillance context specifically, I mean, this is, these are statements coming against a backdrop where for 38 years we have had an Article Three court specifically tasked with 
the assessment of not just the threat, but whether a particular search target is an agent of a foreign power, whether the government is complying with classified minimization and targeting procedures. Um, and so I guess, you know, if you were here, one of the questions I would have loved to ask Justice Scalia is, if it's good enough for the FISA court, why isn't it good enough for you? I mean, to be fair, it's not as if Justice Scalia announced some <clears throat> overarching national security abstention doctrine, right? Many of these cases were non-justiciable for some other independent reason under existing doctrine. And in other cases, uh, we're just talking about re re rhetorical flourishes that he threw in uh, to, when he was uh, explaining the many reasons why his colleagues had, had botched something. Of course. I, I mean, and, and let me say, if we can make this, if, if I, at the risk of making this not about Justice Scalia, right? I do think, though, that there is a meme among a number of current federal judges um, expressing a similar idea that there's a lack of institutional competence in this field, right? A meme that whether it's consistent with Justice Scalia or not is, in my view, belied, not just by the cases we're discussing, but by the dozens of cases federal courts hear on a daily basis that involve not just the kind of complex legal questions Lies is referring to in non-national security settings, but pretty darn complex legal questions in national security context as well, um, and they're handling them. Maybe they're getting them right, maybe they're getting them wrong, but they're not you know, throwing up their hands and saying, we can't do this. All right, question? Uh, my name is uh, François Hébriard. I'm uh, an attorney before the French Supreme Court, and- uh, uh, Speak just a little bit louder, and uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, my name is François Hébriard. I'm an attorney before the French Supreme Court. Okay. And uh, I'm the guy of the Federalist Society in Paris, um, as you know. Uh, I wanted to thank uh, Adam Klein for his comment on Justice Scalia uh, regarding uh, foreign law. Uh, I've been a friend of uh, Justice Breyer and Justice Scalia for 25 years, and I was always surprised in this country when I was hearing uh, people opposing Justice Breyer and Justice Scalia about foreign law, like if uh, Justice Scalia was 100% American view and Justice Breyer looking at Europe. And uh, you were very right to mention that uh, Justice Scalia not only studied in Switzerland, as you said, but he had a very strong, I would say, classical European culture. He knew a lot about the Greek-Roman world and uh, also about continental law. Uh, so I wanted to thank you for mentioning this. What Justice Scalia did not like and did not understand, but uh, this is really the American view, and I think he was right, was the issue for Europeans of the primacy of international law, especially the Convention of Human Rights and uh, EU law, because we gave up on sovereignty, and this, to him, it, it was something very difficult to admit that that to have uh, international law interfering in sovereignty. But uh, thank you for mentioning uh, this, uh, Mr. Klein. Some com comments? Yeah, I just have a quick comment. I mean, uh, I think Justice Scalia's view on the use of international law to interpret U.S. law was again based on his his commitments to textualism and originalism. And if if you believe the Constitution should be interpreted according to its text and original meaning, um, then it's hard to see how you would uh, import contemporary notions of international law into the meaning of U.S. law today. Now, that's not to say that the like U.S. system can't do that. Congress and the President can do that all the time through treaties and statutes and other means. 
and, and he would certainly follow it. But the question was, uh, for him, if, if courts should do it on their own, I think that was inconsistent with his view of the judicial role under the Constitution. Well, of course, the, 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 the other problem with application of international uh, law is that it's, uh, that it's so uh, inconsistent or, if you will, uh, opportunist, for example, uh, what what international law or the law yeah. of, of, of many countries says about things like abortion or same-sex marriage. Yeah, there's no canonical text. Yeah, yeah. that's right. All right, question? Uh, yes, Craig Lean. I'm a city attorney from Florida. Uh, my question is about qualified immunity. Um, because qualified immunity basically says you don't, as, you, as was mentioned before, that you don't uh, look at the subjective intent typically of the, of the police officer or government official um, doing a search. My question to you is, as technology continues to advance and you have all these cases that are so fact-specific as to whether you can, uh, whether the search or the um, government action is permissible, do you believe that almost every one of these cases will end up following, falling under the doctrine of qualified immunity and will that make uh, these cases almost effectively unreviewable? It's a, it's a great question. It's the right question. Um, so I think it's worth separating out three contexts in which these kinds of Fourth Amendment issues can arise, right? There's criminal prosecutions where they can certainly be litigated through a motion to suppress um, and where obviously how the district court rules on the motion to suppress could be the basis for the appeal. Um, there's the possibility of a civil suit for injunctive relief Right, if the um, allegedly unlawful surveillance is ongoing, in which case qualified immunity is irrelevant. Um, and so it's only in the context of damages, right, where the complaint of surveillance has ceased and where the um, alleged victim is not being prosecuted based on the fruits of that surveillance, where qualified immunity is an issue. That said, in that context, I think qualified immunity um, is a huge issue in the national security space specifically, and I've written about this, um, because it is these cases are much fewer and further between and farther between um, because the government has more of an ability to control which cases get brought. Um, and because under Pearson versus Callahan, um, right, as Adam mentioned before, um, the courts have no obligation to go out of their way to answer the merits of the Fourth Amendment question if the law wasn't clearly established. So as we get new technologies raising new questions about government surveillance power, if there isn't an opportunity to resolve those questions in the first two contexts I mentioned, and I do think Pearson makes it a lot easier for courts to simply say, oh, that's a fascinating question, you know, the law wasn't clearly established, we're done. And I think that's a problem. And I do think you could see, in the national security space especially, um, a real retardation in the development of new law, for better or for worse, right, as a result. Yeah, under that jurisprudence, uh, of course, uh, in, in, effect, uh, in effect, every, uh, if you're a city attorney, police officer, whatever it is, gets, gets what in golf we call a mulligan, right? They get one free. Well, that's well, in tort law. Every dog gets one free bite. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and by the way, let me just mention, because there, uh, there were several references uh, earlier to the, to, to the Wren case, and one of the things that to me is, was and is astonishing about Wren is that it was unanimous. That there, there was there was there was no there was no debate uh, on the court about whether, regardless of how ridiculous uh, <laughs> uh, the, uh, the, the action was and and what the obvious intent of the officer was, that it's it's still it's still uh, uh, protected. But, but that, I, that surprised me. Yeah, but I do think you um, 
that, that unanimity would split if you were looking at a case in which you didn't have probable cause to begin with. Because in, in subsequent cases when Scalia said, well, Wren wasn't limited to probable cause, the principle of Wren wasn't limited to probable cause, I don't think all the other justices would have joined him on that. I think they felt like the highest level of protection was already there, so what was the point of examining into what the person's motive was? And I think if, they, if the question of motive came up in a warrantless surveillance context, or one where probable cause didn't exist, you would have started to see splits. And I'll just say, I mean, if we're, if we're talking about Justice Scalia, I would not undervalue or sort of not fail to give proper credence to um, the significance of his opinion in a case called Anderson versus Creighton. I mean, when the Supreme Court established the modern test for qualified immunity in 1982 in Harlow versus Fitzgerald, the court was very much focused on the question from the perspective of the rights of the plaintiff. Um, and whether it was clear under the circumstances that the, that, that the plaintiff's rights were, were violated. In Anderson versus Creighton in 1987, Justice Scalia writes a majority opinion that subtly, but I think very significantly, flips that over and says, no, the question is whether the unlawfulness of the defendant officer's conduct was clearly established, right? So it's less about the plaintiff's rights than about the specific question about what that officer did Right, look through an objective lens. And I think that you know, we can debate the wisdom and the merits of that approach, but I think that had an enormous effect on the shape of qualified immunity jurisprudence thereafter. All right, uh, question? Hello, my name is John Wood. I'm a tax attorney at the firm Butler Snow. My question has to do with individuals' expectation of privacy in digital files or emails. And um, we had discussed, the panel had discussed um, the expectation of privacy isn't necessarily violated because we, we have to interface with the service providers in order to use these, uh, these services. But my question um, goes to, uh, in a world where we have WikiLeaks and uh, an increasing number of cyber attacks, and we're finding out more and more that our digital uh, information is less and less secure, do you think that changes the equation of our expectation that those files will be private? So, I mean, I, I think it's, it's an argument that's out there. I will say the government takes exactly the opposite position in the context of national security leaks. Um, so, for example, it is often the case that a litigant will point to a leaked document and say, oh, this has now been declassified, um, the old-fashioned way, um, right, um, as evidence that that documents should therefore be part of the record, courts will not do that, right? Uh, courts will actually say, no, just because it's been leaked doesn't mean it's actually... Doesn't mean it's not secret. Doesn't mean it's not secret. Um, that may sound Kafka-esque um, in a way that, you know, we know it's there, they know it's there, but we all pretend that it's not there. Um, but I think the idea behind it is the same one that I react to from the prompt of the question, which is you don't want to incentivize um, what is in many contexts illegal or at the very least um, unethical conduct. And the other thing is, the fact that your privacy is at risk um, in all cases doesn't mean that it becomes valueless. And I think, I mean, that's one of the problems underlying the third party doctrine to begin with, right? Is this idea that if you tell something to anyone, you then run the risk that they may go tell the police or something like that, and so you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy. And that, to me, I mean, leaving alone the technological developments, like going back to the original sort of formulation of that doctrine, is... Um, it's off because it's not true. I mean, think about it. If I, you know, if I tell something to my mother in confidence, is do I feel that that information that I might as well just go tell the NSA and in fact put it on a billboard on the highway? No. I mean, my mom might rat me out, but I don't think so. And I have reasons to, you know, it's just, it's not, it's, 
it's silly. It's a legal fiction to say that disclosure to one person is disclosure to everyone. It's just not. So the fact that WikiLeaks might get my emails, oh Lord, um, now you just gave me something else to worry about, um, it, it doesn't, doesn't mean that I have no interest in privacy in them. In fact, if anything, I have a greater interest and I'm going to go back and change my email system. Can I just tack on to that a bit? I agree with that wholeheartedly. I hope the court would not adopt such a doctrine. Uh, but it does uh, highlight uh, one deficiency, perhaps, of the Katz approach to uh, the Fourth Amendment, Fourth Amendment privacy, and that is that it is malleable. If uh, the court decides that all of a sudden you have no expectation of privacy <coughs> in email because it's likely to be leaked, so be it. Whereas the property-based uh, originalist approach that focuses on the four constitutionally protected areas and intrusions of those areas has a firmness and a rigor that the malleable cat's approach lacks. And that's one reason why it uh, can, is better designed to endure through the ages, I think an originalist would say. Yeah, and I, I would just agree that cat's is miserable. But, but, <laughs> but the question is, in an era where houses, papers, effects, and persons are no longer strictly everything that's going to be at issue here in these kinds of searches. How do you, how far can you take the notion of analogy, right? How far can you go in saying this thermal sensing device is basically the same as walking to a home? You know, and right now, that's doing a lot of work. Yeah. You know, that sort of process of analogy is doing a lot of work. And I wish there were a better way, but we're still waiting for one. Can I just add one thing there, which is, I mean, when we stretch these analogies, and I think we have to sometimes with technology, um, we're, we're assuming that the Constitution provides an answer. And it may just come to a point where technology just outstrips the Constitution. And it wouldn't have surprised the founders who thought you need a new constitutional amendment uh, every generation or two to take account of new circumstances. So at some point, I mean, that we, we're amazed by the technology now, but I can only imagine what the technology will be in 50 years. Question? Yes, my name is Bill Hempler. I'm a financial services attorney here in Washington, D.C. This has been a fascinating panel. I really did not need the coffee that I got at the break. Um, but I, and I'm glad I'm the last one asking this because it's not a national security question. But Brad, you did open the door and there was a robust discussion on Boyle. I'm wondering if you could elaborate on your discussion with Justice Scalia when you challenged him on that because we've been talking about all the virtues of uh, Justice Scalia, which I think he had many. But I think we would learn a lot from that discussion on the, the case that has been recognized as maybe not being his finest hour. Well, I'll, I'll just say this. I mean, when I, so I clerked for Justice Scalia in 1989-90, and I think the decision was in 1988. I think it was the term before. And of course, I had read the decision in anticipation of uh, clerking, and I had the same reaction that Steve had, which was, really? Justice Scalia wrote this, huh? Um, how is this consistent with his view of judicial power and uh, federal common law? And um, so I asked him about it, and um, uh, we had a little discussion about it, back and forth. And uh, when, when I began teaching in 1993, I began researching an article on federal common law, which I published. Um, in 1996, I published an article on federal common law. And I actually have a discussion of Boyle in that, in that article. And I, after I published it, I sent it to Justice Scalia. And I surprised myself because I changed my mind about Boyle, at least the result, if not the, um, if not the reasoning of the opinion, which is to say, just, just to dig a little bit deeper on it, I mean, 
when, so if, if Congress passes statutes authorizing the president to run the military, in effect, um, and they do so, so I'll give you an example, and they do so, the question is, can states interfere with that function? And I, I think the, the argument would be that the, the statutes, the constitutional provisions authorizing uh, Congress to raise and support armies, and then the statutes authorizing the executive branch and the military to do what they're doing, as long as they're authorized by law, um, have some preemptive effect. So um, during the Cold War, uh, the United States used to uh, transport you know, nuclear warheads around on trains uh, as part of its deterrence um, so they wouldn't be stationary. Um, I mean, let's say Ver Vermont says, you know, we're a nuclear-free zone. You can't bring any nuclear warheads in Vermont, which they may have, they may have done, even. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, let's say the, the uh, military is, is paying a fee to uh, railroads who own the track uh, to, for the right to transport uh, on their tracks. Um, you know, could Vermont, you know, shut it down or, or uh, you know, impose a, a huge fine on railroads for allowing nuclear, um, the military to transport nuclear weapons on the, on the railroads in Virginia? I mean, in Vermont? I, you know, I just don't think so. I think it's just a pretty straightforward um, preemption issue. Well, um, I th I th it's I think not that, really I, federal yeah. common law, it's just preemption. The, the I, th I think that's a good point because it's not a matter of a federal court going in and rewriting the tort law of Vermont that's or Kansas preemptive. regarding something like tort causation or damages. It's simply a matter of saying because this has to do with, with uh, military directives as to specifications for products, it's not cognizable. That's I don't see that as an infringement. If, if, and if Congress passed a statute saying that, I would happily agree. Right, but the Congress does a lot of things. I mean, so let me ask you a question. Um, the Congress has authorized, as was, was mentioned, um, post office and mail delivery. And did you ever notice that mail trucks often drive on the wrong side of the, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, steering and so forth is on the wrong side of the car? in a mail truck. And that's so that they can, in rural areas, reach in and put mail in the mailbox. Now, under state law, that's not allowed. Do, does Congress, and so if they get a huge, what if they get, give them a fine, give the driver a fine? Do you know that the FTC, Is that preempted? Do you know that the FTC has an express exception for postal employees? Maybe it does. It does. But I'm just saying, I mean, every and it, if, Congress authorizes, if Congress authorizes action to be taken, and then the government carries it out. You know, it's interesting. I mean, this is the one area where, um, uh, you know, critics of Justice Scalia want to uh, allow states to interfere with federal functions. Where in most areas they say that's outrageous. How can a state interfere with? But a federal I don't know function? what a, I guess I just don't know what a federal function is if it's not enmeshed in some affirmative policy. And and I don't think you and I are going to sit here and convince each other. Um, I just you know I, I think it's just worth stressing um, that the theory of judicial power that you have to embrace to believe that when Congress has expressly not addressed the question, the courts have the power to, on their own, displace the positive law of a state, um, is a theory that I'm very happy with um, and a theory that I would love to see more of. I mean, to be fair, the federal uh, policy expressed there was to have the helicopter hatch in a particular place 
right? And that was a DOD purchasing decision. Right. And Justice Scalia has said that, yes, agency regulations can displace uh, state causes of action. In some right, cases. and so it boils a preemption, preemption case. Implied conflict preemption. Then I would, love, I would love a citation to the federal regulation that did the preemption in Boyle. So let me uh, interrupt just to say we have about four minutes left. If any of the panelists has a one-minute uh, summation uh, or, or any kind of other response about anything that's been discussed. I actually, I have to catch a flight, so. You have to catch a flight, all right. Are we, everybody said what you need I, to say? I, I would just say it's great right. that we've had this discussion um, because I think Justice Scalia will be remembered as one of the most consequential justices in uh, all areas of law, but including this area. And, and I want to say that in going back and rereading a lot of his opinions um, in preparation for this panel, um, I greatly enjoyed myself doing so. And just there's a lot in there to, a lot in there to admire, yep. and a lot that really sticks with you. Let's give this panel a big uh, round of applause.